Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you partly with the support of our generous Patreon community. Your membership allows us to continue producing this podcast for as little as $1 a month. Learn more at patreon.com slash secret library. This is the Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to season four, The Visible Writer. What does it mean to identify as a writer? What happens when your writing is visible in the world? We'll be exploring these and other questions this season. We're also excited to make the show more visible. If this episode is inspiring for you, please share it with a friend and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. It means so much and it helps these conversations impact more listeners. Welcome. My guest today is the one and only Natalie Goldberg. Natalie Goldberg is the author of 15 books, including Writing Down the Bones, which has sold over 1 million copies, has been translated into 14 languages, and started a revolution in the way we practice writing. For more than 40 years, Natalie has practiced Zen and taught seminars in writing as a practice. She lives in northern New Mexico. In this episode, we discuss Natalie's most recent book, Three Simple Lines, a writer's pilgrimage into the heart and homeland of haiku. I was incredibly honored to have the opportunity to include Natalie in this season. And it particularly struck me about visibility when thinking about Natalie Goldberg's work, both in terms of writing down the bones, which has impacted so many of us, but also in the stories she shares in Three Simple Lines about her trips to Japan and her relationship with haiku poets who lived, in some cases, centuries before she did. And yet their writing, the fact that they shared their writing and made it visible in the time that they lived continues to touch us years and even generations later. This to me touched the heart of what it means to be visible as a writer and the fact that we may not even know what gifts our writing is able to give long after we're no longer here. I am incredibly honored to introduce and share with you my conversation with Natalie Goldberg. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for coming on. It's my pleasure. I have to say, first of all, to thank you for writing Three Simple Lines because I, as we all have, have been indoors in the same location for the past year and reading this book was so much like a magical vacation and following along in your footsteps as you went multiple times to Japan. So first of all, I want to thank you for that. 
Thank you. I, I didn't expect that, but it's true. Lots of people have said, oh, it was such a nice break. I went to another world. Yeah, exactly. And not just another world, but another time. And one of the things that really struck me and I thought was particularly beautiful is as you talk about several haiku masters throughout the book, that Busan was such a devotee of Basho, and yet they weren't alive at the same time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You can fall, I guess, deeply in love with someone who doesn't really exist anymore. And but their, their work conveys something so deeply that you fall in love. And then you fell in love years after that. Um, in in your studies uh, when yes, you were studying I, with yes. Alan. Yes, I definitely did. Alan Ginsberg in 1976, just one afternoon in class and Boulder, Colorado talked about the haiku writers, the great haiku writers. And he named four, Shiki, Basho, Busan, and Isa. And I never forgot that. And he also told us, he said, um, you don't have to pay attention to five, seven, five syllables that um, Japanese, each syllable really counts for something. They don't have words like the and things like that, that. So um, all you have to do is write three short lines. The real test of a haiku is that upon hearing one, you feel a sensation of space, which then he paused and then he said, which is nothing less than God. Mm. And I never forgot that. And it was really, and I'd always read haiku. And I, he also taught, which was really important, that translation is everything. If you pick up a book of haiku that's not that's not a good translation, you put it down and you have no idea that haiku could be anything good. So um, it, that really mattered. And then over the years, I would read haiku, sometimes just in bookstores or buy books, because it brought me to another place. It really brought me right here. And it, it just opened the world. And I think that's why it's so good to have it now, you know, um, because it does bring you, even if it's suffering, it's a different suffering. It's not your suffering. And it brings you into a presence with the suffering or with, you know, haiku is also funny. So um, I, in... Oh, when was it? It was at least 20 years later. Maybe not that long. But anyway, I read this haiku by Busan when I was at a, a spa, very, very funky spa in New Mexico. I'll recite it for you. And oh, my, please. And my teacher, Katagiri Roshi, had just died. Oh. So I was pretty heartbroken. And uh, it this haiku by Busan. I'd always been studying Basho. And um, this haiku by Busan hit, I mean, it met me right where I was. So I know it by heart. Ah, uh, grief and sadness. The fishing line trembles 
in the autumn breeze. I'll say it again. Mm. Ah, grief and sadness. The fishing line trembles in the autumn breeze. And I, you know, I, then I thought, Busan. And so then I started studying Busan and I made a vow that I would go to his grave in Japan and thank him. <laughs> and I do that. I've done that a lot. I go to um, writers and painters' graves that people I really love and just thank them. You know, and people think it's odd, but really, don't you go to your grandmother's grave or your aunts or your parents? So I do that with um, artists and I just thank them. And I'm also interested where they ended up. So I made that vow to Busan, but it took, it wasn't until 19 years later <laughs> that I went to Japan. I'd, I'd gone to Japan. It, I don't, it's too complicated, but anyway, <laughs> I've been to Japan other times, but this time I went with the purpose of finding his grave. And it was sort of awkward. First of all, it's not easy to find his grave. And no, it didn't sound like it. <laughs> no, and it's Japan. So, um, you know, it, it, people don't speak English and it was very difficult. And uh, I did find it and I, um, I thanked him. I felt very awkward because any of the artists or writers I'd seen before, at least they were living usually at least in the 20th century. Busan was from the 17th century. So I was really calling out through the centuries. And not only that, you know, he was a male Japanese from another world. And um, I felt a little foolish, but I did it anyway. And there's a whole chapter in the book, Three Simple Lines, about going there and uh, meeting Busan in my way. I, it's really beautiful because you find two graves in the book, not just Busan, but also Basho's and Basho's hut that Busan restored. And yeah. one of the things that I loved is that there are these sort of traditions in this of calling back to those who've influenced us and whose work has mattered because he found out that Basho's hut had been it was falling apart and he rebuilt it yeah it was a hubble of dirt so he called his friends and he rebuilt it with his friends and they made a vow that every year they would meet there and for the weekend stay there write haiku and drink sake and that was very much a tradition that you get together with your friends drink sake and um write haiku so he did that for many years. And uh, when he died, he was buried above Basho's hut. Mm. And um, I don't know if I want to, if I should tell too much about the book, because I want you to have surprises. But <laughs> I will reveal is afterwards, when I got to his um, grave site, I noticed there was a whole bunch of graves around it. But, I, you know, I, I couldn't speak. I, I can't read Chinese, Japanese, and it's ancient Japanese, so I really can't read it. So, um, but when I got back to my hotel that night and read further in my book, I realized 
that those graves around him were his haiku disciples. Mm. And that was very moving for me because you realize that haiku had a real tradition and a lineage. And I know I'm also a Zen practitioner, Mm -hmm. and I know that in Zen, but in writing, we don't have that kind of clear, we're kind of all alone. You know, we have some writing friends and, you know, we honor writers that have meant a lot to us, but not like a like a real tradition where it's a lineage and you're buried together. It was um, not together, but around. They didn't yes. all go into one grave, but it was right. very, it, and that's actually why I went and why I studied the haiku writers. I wanted to understand a tradition of writing, a writing tradition that was parallel to the Zen tradition. That's so powerful because we can think of so many things that we've read, like you having memorized this haiku that moved you so much at a critical point in life. And then we we go forward and there's books we've read. I think about this all the time, that if these books hadn't been written, we wouldn't be the same. And yet when we're sitting alone working on our own books, it's very easy for us to, to think, oh, it doesn't matter if I finish this. It's not going to matter to anyone but then you think if Basho didn't write, where would Busan be? And if Busan didn't write, then you would never have made this trip. Yeah, no, it, it's true. It is a lineage, but it is very hard when you're alone writing. You don't, you know, you can just lose it. <laughs> you know, think it's a waste of time. And believe me, writing three simple lines, it, this, this was my 15th book. You think people have the idea, oh, then it's easy for you. It gets harder. And this particularly was hard because I was pulling together a lot. First of all, I had to understand some things about Japanese culture. I had to, um, in it is the history of the four um, haiku writers you know, the four great. And then I found a woman haiku writer Mm. who was just as equal. And she had her own women disciples that they practiced together. And I was also on a, a, you know, on a lineage tour with my friends and we were walking together. And um, there were many things happening in this book. And I thought, oh God, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. And it was really um, only a month before I was done that I wove it together. I wove all the um, all the different directions I, like a braid. I just wove it all together, and I think it works. And then two months after I'd written it. I thought, oh, I didn't write an epilogue. And I had this idea for an epilogue. And I thought, Natalie, it has nothing to do with the book. And I said, well, and, but it kept at me. So I thought, just write it and you'll figure it out later. So I wrote it down and then it worked. And I realized that the whole book, unbeknownst to me, was an homage to Allen Ginsberg. Oh. Yeah who was very, very important to me. Um, we ended up becoming friendly and I taught with him years later. 
after I'd taken that one course. Many years later, I taught with him in LA two years in a row. And he really is the person who brought together not just writing, but writing and studying the mind. That was very important to me because I was a Zen person and just writing, but but when it brought in the study of the mind, really, what are your tools to be a writer? Pen, paper, and the human mind. The better you understand how it works, the better you can use it for writing. I think that it's so important also to understand the mind because the tricks that it plays on us as we write. And for someone sitting down and reading this book like me, it reads like you sat down on a Saturday afternoon and thought, oh, I will tell the story of these lovely travels and share some of my knowledge about these poets along the way. And that's how we often feel reading a book. It reads like a casual story that someone has told. And that's never true. You know, it's like a Frankenstein's monster that has to be put together with lots of seams and moving things around. But we all, the reader and the writer have a completely different experience of it. Even for writers who also read, we think, oh, they did it. They did it so beautifully, but mine is uniquely, um, uniquely cobbled together. Yes, I agree. And, but... As a writer, at least we should be more sophisticated and know the work that goes in to pull off something. People have, since the book has been out, people have, you know, they thought they were complimenting me. They said, oh, I loved it so much. I just sat down and read it in one sitting. And I say, could you read it again? It took me years to digest that understanding so it could be so simple for you. So, yeah, (laughs) but people don't get it. People don't, you know, they're not very compassionate toward writers. Yeah, those... Yeah, those who read but don't write, it's heartbreaking that you, you know, even if it's someone's favorite book, they're never going to spend as much time reading it as, as you've spent writing it. Well, you know what's so interesting do you, you know, Harada Roshi, who I meet in here. Yeah, who's who wonderful. For me in Japan, um, who is Katagiri's best friend. It turns yes. out. He called me. Uh, no, he didn't call me. He doesn't speak English. So Mitsue, who's also in the book, who's my mm-hmm. translator, she set it up so we could do a, um, a Zoom. After I sent him, when the book came out, I sent him a copy overnight to Japan. Wow. You could imagine how much it costs. And, um, but I, want, I knew it meant a lot to him. So he said he fully understood the book in the Zoom. And I said to Mitsue, ask him how he knew. I mean, he, he talked and she translated it. He totally got the book. And I said, ask him. He doesn't speak English. How did he know all this stuff? So she asked him on the Zoom and he said, I read what I cannot read. <laughs> That's so Zen. And then he said, but I'm going to read it again. And this time I'm going to spend two years on it. And I'm going to sit with an English dictionary and study it. Wow. And I thought, two years? That's almost as long as I'd taken to write it. And that was very satisfying. 
No one ever again will say that probably. That's the most respectful reader you could have had. Yes, exactly. He was so enthusiastic. Yeah. He's such a wonderful, he's such a wonderful person. He really came through in the book. And I loved the oh, sort of man. accidental way that you meet and you think he's like a, you know, a young kid who's interested in your book. And it's yet another example of a book you had written such a long time ago, bringing a new person in who's such a wonderful connection. Yes, you're right. He read Writing Down the Bones, which I wrote in 1986. He read it in translation and then came looking for me. And it was just a coincidence. The story's in there. Yeah, it's great. I was in Japan. <laughs> it's just, it, it is outrageous. It's like yeah. truth is impossible or it feels too, if you'd written this in a novel, nobody would have believed it. Yeah, <laughs> I know. So that's what I mean. There's a lot of story in here. And yet I, you really understand haiku, hopefully, when you're done. You know, you have a working knowledge of haiku. And speaking of all of the work that goes into it, one of the things, as someone who's written both fiction and nonfiction, putting together a story like this, a personal story with so much history and so much weight from different experiences of your life, how did you decide what was in and what was out? I just imagine that that was extremely difficult. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I put in everything. <laughs> I put in everything that mattered to me. Mm. And I somehow pulled it together so it worked. Because if it mattered to me, if I could make it alive enough, it would matter to you. But the trick is to make it alive. Mm. And, you know, usually you don't have to go to Japan to write a book. This is the first time I've done anything like that. Um, usually I'm not that exotic. <laughs> but, but how okay. wonderful to have done that. And now when it wouldn't have been possible more recently. Yes, you're right. It was the skin of my teeth. Yeah. Exactly. To go several times. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you meet a group also in the book who is a little bit closer to home, but equally passionate about haiku. And <laughs> they get together and write. And I loved this as well. And it brought up for me the importance of connecting with like-minded others to share a passion that you have about writing. I'm wondering yeah, if you could say something about the impact of that group and of groups in general. Well, you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I wasn't sure where the book was going and I didn't know if it was about me writing haiku. It really wasn't, but I thought, oh, I better do that too. So I looked up and I found that all over the United States and actually you're in Germany. I mm -hmm. bet people are writing haiku like mad in Germany. All over the world, people are writing haiku. Mm -hmm. And I found in my very own little town, they were meeting once a month, a group that had been meeting for seven years. And you could join them. And so I joined them and they were really tough on me. <laughs> and I wanted them to be. I didn't know how to write haiku. And it was really fun to be the dum-dum in the class. 
and I have a whole chapter about it. And I was very nervous that they would think when the book came out that I just went to the class to use it for the book, but they, they really liked it. And they said, you Aww. absolutely caught what the class is like. Oh, so that felt really good, but it was really fun. And, um, you know, I would I kept saying to them, well, what, how do you write haiku? How do you do this? And they would always pull me aside, people, as we left and said, just read a lot of haiku and write a lot of haiku. And I thought, oh, my God, that's exactly what I tell my students. But I never. um you know, but I didn't think that I translate it for haiku. But of course, you have to practice it. Are you still writing as much haiku now that you've finished the book? Um, no, probably mm-hmm. not. Yeah. But I, anyway, I write it and I notice that when I sit down to work, I'll find a few haiku and I start reworking them and an hour will go by. Ah. It's very seductive. You know, I I have this feeling before we're done, I should just read a few haiku. Yeah, that would be great. Um, Let's see. Oh, here's another Busan. Oh, yeah. Okay, so listen, see if your mind, if you feel that little sensation of space, which is really what it means is that you might do almost like, uh, ah, 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 it takes a moment. I grasp in the darkness of the heart a firefly. Mm. I grasp in the darkness of the heart a firefly. Um, let me move around a little. Ah, this one's Busan too. The two plum trees. I love their blooming, one early, one later. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? Mm-hmm. You never think of that, but it's true. One often blooms a little bit faster. With two plum trees, I love their blooming, one early, one later. And here, the rainy season and the river with no name a frightening thing. The rainy season and the river with no name, a frightening thing. Let me see if I can. Oh, this one I deeply love. And people don't know. It's attributed to Busan in some books. And then it's attributed to Shiki in other books. Mm. And so I asked Kaz Tanahashi, who is a Japanese friend who lives here, and he read it and he said, hmm, sounds like Shiki, but it could be Busan. He said, let's not find out. Let's live with the mystery. Mm. Go read this haiku, which actually is very heartbreaking if it's Shiki. Because as you read about Shiki's life, um, he died in his early 30s and he had TB. And at 13, he coughed his first blood mm. and he knew his whole life he would die. But he kept writing hundreds and hundreds of haiku. I go 
you stay two autumns. Mm. Say that again. It does so much feel like shicky. I go, you stay two autumns. So let me see. I want to read a few other. Yeah. Oh, this is um, Isa. He's very well loved in Japan. Basho is deeply honored, but uh, Isa is loved. Sitting on her eggs, the chicken admires the peony. (laughs) Sitting on her eggs, the chicken admires the peony. Oh, and this one, he had a, he wrote some very funny haiku, but he had a very hard life. And um, he got married in his later years and had three children. And his wife and the three children died eventually. And it was a very tough time. You know, this was the 18th century in Japan. And he really loved his daughter. I'll read this one. In a dream, my daughter lifts a melon to her soft cheek, just after she died. In I remember dream, that one. In a dream, my daughter lifts a melon to her soft cheek. And he, um, his mother died when he was three. And when he was six, he wrote his first haiku. Come play with me, you little sparrow motherless sparrow. It's incredible for a six-year-old. I know. Yeah. You know, six-year-olds are pretty awake, actually. Mountain persimmons. The mother is eating the astringent parts. (laughs) Persimmons are, you know, grow all over Japan. And, uh, Who can be a stranger under the cherry blossoms? And this one really fits for for you because you asked me, is it snowing here? And in New Mexico, it's not snowing, that we want snow. But you said in Germany, it's snowing. Mm -hmm. Simply I'm here, simply snow falls. I mean, do you see that's what I was trying to say at the beginning is that haiku, we're having, the world is having such a hard time now. And yet pull out haiku and it'll bring you, even if it's suffering, it'll just bring you right here to a different place. Simply I'm here. Simply snow falls. It's, I think that there's, there is such a parallel I can see of the the sensibility of meditation and this desire to have that moment, you know, where you sort of hover and you're in the present and that the the haiku brings you to that point. Yes. Yeah. It's so yeah. beautiful. And it also, I can see it like something beautiful to read to center yourself before you write and it would change your writing. I think you're right. Yeah. It's very helpful. Yeah. Um, 
I've never done that before I wrote, but I've certainly done it to center myself or to come home myself. So if people want to jump in, I think you have some some suggestions as well in the book. But if you if somebody said, I must have a collection of haiku right now. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to to reading about your relationship to it in three simple lines, what collection of haiku do you think is a particularly favorite one? Okay, well, first I do want to say that I actually spent a lot of money because translations turn out to be very expensive. I must have in this book really curated over 100 haiku. Yes. So that this book has lots of haiku. But um, other, I'm thinking a good one is Robert Haas. Mm. I think it's the complete haiku of the four, some of the four greats. Um, I think that I'm not, but it's look up Robert Haas. Okay. And that I would say, and also R.H. Blythe. That's the one that ensnared you on that, on that trip. Yeah. He was, um, R.H. Blythe was, um, in an internment camp in World War II. And he, um, not to waste time, he taught himself Japanese and studied Japanese literature and came out with volumes of translation of haikus. That's incredible. Different seasons, spring volume, winter volume, and has tons of haiku in there. Amazing. Yeah. I want to thank you so much, Natalie, for taking the time to talk more about the book, which really is such a gift, both because of how haiku can take care of us in a difficult time, but also because of the ability to travel with you as you follow the adventures that this, these vows um, to find in particular Busan and Basho's graves took you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.